So, um, are any of you suffering today? What? You don't have to show me your hand, but suffering's a, suffering is an issue. Is this coming through loud enough? Or yeah, okay. It's hard to tell sometimes up here. What do you do with it? What do you do with suffering? There was a man by the name of Andre Trocme. Anybody ever hear of Andre Trocme? He's actually quite famous in some circles. Andre Trocme was a pastor during World War II. He he was French and uh, he lived in a small. Formerly Huguenot, well, not formerly. I guess they were descended from the Huguenots up up uh, up in the mountains in France. They'd been persecuted for centuries from the from the uh, the dominant Catholic culture around them, and so they were like they were kind of used to to that. And then World War II broke out, and the persecution against the Jews came, and uh, and they ended up receiving. Uh, in that sort of underground network, 5,000 Jewish people, 5,000 Jewish people were saved through the work of Andre Trachme and his congregations, remembered to this day by the by uh, the nation of Israel. Very inspiring story on the one hand, and at the same time, one that is is quite tragic, because. Um, Andre Trocme, uh, you know, he started out good. I mean, he started, started out well. He was he was he was a believer, um, but then. His uh, 14-year-old son, Jean-Pierre, accidentally hung himself in the summer of 1944. So right during the war when they're saving Jews, um, he loses the apple of his eye. Didn't help that he was married to an atheist. His, uh, his wife was uh, an atheist. I'm getting a lot of uh, reverberation up here. I don't know if you can, yeah, thank you. <laughs> echo, echo, echo. Back to the truck maze. Anyway, she was a, an embittered atheist, so this didn't help at all when his, when his son died and she hurled accusations, I'm sure. And Andre Truckmay wrote this. He said, there is nothing positive. I lost my faith, at least my faith in a God who follows me and is supposed to protect me from evil. We are all thrown into an absurd world which is submitted to absurd and chaotic circumstances. That's sad. That's sad. I, I, I think, honestly, uh, he eventually sort of broke through to a point where he believed in God, but he thought God was distant, that God could not help, that God was powerless to help in evil, but that he cared for us, that he, you know, sort of like the suffering God, God suffers with you. Is that, though, a biblical understanding of suffering? And will that actually help us in any way, shape, or form. I don't think it is. I don't think it will. I think we have to have the approach of the psalmist. And um, so we're going to look at that today. The big idea today is wrestle with God in your suffering. When you suffer, situate God in your suffering. Does that make sense when I say that? Situate God in your suffering. Don't put God way out there somewhere and suffer in an isolated fashion as though God were quite apart and distinct and uninvolved. Root, root that in God and then wrestle with God. This is a psalm of David. David is going through something in his life, something. Uh, and, and historically, the church considered this one of the penitential psalms. So they thought of it as, as David messed up somehow and he's repenting here. Whether that's true, I, I mean, it, it's for sure a song of lament. He's suffering, he's trying to deal with it, but he's not, he's not pushing God away. He's pulling God in like God's not going to get away from him, kind of pulling in. 
He's like Job. Do you remember what Job said of his suffering? He said a lot, actually. But he said this. He said, though he slay me, he's speaking about God, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. So that's, that's a person who's suffering and basically says in his suffering, I'm not letting God get away from me on this. I'm, keep, you know, I'm pulling him in tight. I'm going to wrestle with him until I get you know, that relief of my suffering. Musically speaking, you may have seen this, it's a shimoneth. You're like, oh, it's one of those old shimoneths, huh? Yeah, that's, I can tell that. What's a shimoneth? We don't know. That's the short answer, and that I could go into, but we, we don't know what a shimoneth is. It was, it was some kind of a psalm, and, and we've lost the, the, the meaning as to what it, what it is, but we can see the content. How do we go through suffering? I'm going to give you five ways. Okay, if these are five biblical suggestions for dealing biblically, and I emphasize the word biblically there, you can suffer all kinds of different ways, but this is how you should go about it scripturally. In suffering, consider God's discipline. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, I could imagine this being a controversial sermon right off the bat because I can hear some people uh, rebuking me and saying, you know, you shouldn't talk about discipline when somebody is suffering. And I will admit, like if I go to see somebody in the hospital and they're hurting, my first question is not, what did you do that, uh, that God is taking you through this path of discipline right now? That's not going to be my first question because people wouldn't understand it. Um, uh, is, is suffering or can suffering be God's discipline? And the answer to that is yes, it can be. It's not always the case that God is disciplining us when we go through there's all kinds of other reasons why you know if you ask the question why do i have to go through this the answer is we don't know 100 percent. like if you're suffering i can't actually tell you 100 percent why but could it be god's discipline the answer is yes we misunderstand discipline because we think oh it's it's like god just punishing you you got out of line and god is just smacking you down that's not really a biblical view of discipline. Discipline's not chiefly punitive. I mean, it hurts. It's uncomfortable. But discipline, you take this even out of the spiritual realm, why, why do you go through any discipline? Why do you go to the gym? Why do you do that to yourself, you who go to the gym? You're like, well, because I'm like the Pillsbury Doughboy, and I want to look like, you know, insert, you know, model-like physique person over here, right? You're wanting to be shaped into this, this form that you're not, and so you're willing to go through pain to get there. That's what a coach does with you. That's what your parents do with you, right? They're, they, like, look at you when you're little and you're so cute, but they can see that feral alley cat, you know, at the end of their work and so they don't want that they're trying to they, they want you to be you know a housebroken you know gentle nice uh yeah they, they don't that's that's the whole goal of discipline the writer of hebrews says this about god's discipline and how we should receive it it says for they disciplined us this is fathers for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he that's god disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. 
So what is God doing? God is forming us into the image of his son, Romans chapter 8. He's, he's working these things. So pain and suffering are aspects of that, or can be. Now, David may be repenting of a sin here. I don't know. It, there, there could be an aspect of that kind of discipline in his life. The thing that you see is David doesn't question God's right to discipline him. Or that maybe it would be good for him to be disciplined. What is, he, what is he really chiefly concerned about here? He's like, don't do it in your wrath. Don't discipline me in your fury. And I can hear Christians saying to me at this point, like, Jay, this is not a Christian prayer. And I hear this said about various psalms. Like, you know the psalm that says, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And they go, well, you shouldn't even pray that. It's an Old Testament thing. God's not, you're a New Testament Christian and so forth. And that's true. And God's not going to take his Holy Spirit away from you. And, and it says we're not destined to wrath. So can a Christian pray this way? And I say, yes. Yes, because you're missing the point when you say that. You're missing the whole point. If you are suffering under the hand of God in discipline, in that kind of a scenario, it's good for you to pray this way. It, it, it is helpful. It's dialogue. It's therapy. You all like therapy? Right? We're the therapy generation. We, oh, tell me what's therapeutic. I'll write that down and save that for later because I need all the therapy I can get. This is it. This is biblical therapy. You're suffering and you cry out, Lord, don't discipline me in your fury. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Can you imagine a child being punished? Um, some of us who grew up in the 60s can imagine this better than others because there's a hickory switch involved and uh, your parents coming at you. <laughs> Kelly, do you know what I'm talking about here? Your dad, was a, your dad was too nice to you. I know that right now. But, uh, right? Yeah, Carl's like, yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, some of us, we saw wrath in our, in our father or mother's eyes as they, as they got the, the instrument of discipline. And uh, we knew we were going to get it. So what are we asking them to do? Don't kill me, right? Don't kill me. Don't hurt me. Don't do it when you're really, really angry. Could we just take a moment and breathe, Mom? Just, uh, no, you didn't, we never said that. But that's what we wanted. We wanted them to just take a half a step back from their fury and, and just do it in a way that we could all live with. Can you imagine a parent saying, how dare you even suggest I would kill you? Now you're really getting it. Um, <laughs> no, you know, that, that, that's, uh, it, it, is, it is good for us in our dialogue. We are in a relationship with our Father, with our God. And so this, what we're looking for, what the child's looking for is assurance of, of the love, right? And so it's part of that process. It's part of that spiritual dialogue. Lord, don't discipline me in your fury. You're right to discipline me. Just don't, just don't do it when you're upset. And we know God's going to do what's right. We, we pray this way for our sake, don't we? Okay, next. In suffering, cry out for God's grace. Cry out for his grace. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. And I think the word troubled here is under-translated. Now, you tell me... Um, because lexically, if, you, if I may use that word, meaning the dictionary definition of this, um, this word can be translated horrified. And I feel like there's a distance between troubled and horrified. Well, I'm a little troubled. Horrified, that says something more. The old King James had the word vexed. 
and vexed. The NIV has the word agony. And this is the same Hebrew word that David uses in Psalm 2 when he's talking about his enemies. That's what they, they were supposed to be going through trouble, not David. Listen to him. He says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. This is his enemies. He will terrify them in his fury. You know that wrath? Don't discipline me in your wrath. This is how David Im- imagines what God is going to do to his enemies. And now David is using the very same word to describe himself. That's not how it's supposed to be. We're God's people. No, we're the elect. We're not supposed to have to go through all this, right? It's only those, those bad people over there that should have to go through this. Why am, why am I going through that? David is beside himself. His whole, you know, when it uses bones, it means you're, it, it really, that's a stand-in metaphor for your whole body. That's everything. That's your whole physicality. Soul, that's the whole immaterial aspect of you bound up as well with your life and with your body. So it's it's, every, it's the whole enchilada that's suffering here. Every bit of it is languishing. Languishing is that idea of something that is just shriveling and, and drying up. David is describing something akin to what Job went through. Because Job, when Job went through what Job went through, he went through every imaginable form of suffering. Like any box that could be ticked when you go into your doctor's office, are you suffering from this? Have you got a cramp in your leg? Have you got a runny nose? Da, 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 and you're just checking them all? Yeah? Do you feel blue? Yep. Yeah? It's the whole thing. It's everything. It's, you know, Job lost his family, his health, his wealth. And, and this is kind of where David is in all of this. And, and meanwhile, you've got people like Job's wife who say things like, why don't you curse God and die? Yeah. Jesus was surrounded by jeering crowds. He saved others. Can he save himself? So on top of all of what you're going through, there's, there's that sense that, am, am I being punished? Am I I in the wrong place? David cries out to God, be gracious to me. Heal me. Why? Because God alone is the one who is the repository of all grace. Remember that idea in in Hebrew, the idea of grace has a lot to do with, with a superior who stoops down to help an inferior. The inferior has nothing to give, has no help he or she can bring. It has to come from above. And David recognizes himself in that position. And though he is suffering, though it feels like God is behind it all and he's going through all this, he is going to wrestle with that God because that is the only God who can save. He's the only God who has mercy and and who has grace. He's the one alone. There used to be a a song, well, I suppose there still is, a song by the Gaithers. Has anybody ever listened to the Gaithers? That's old school. That's boomer stuff, man. Yeah, that's an acquired taste. Don't try it all at once. Uh, just take it in little bites. But uh, yeah, there, there's a line in one of the songs, where could I go but to the Lord? How many of you boomers are hearing that song in your head now? Yes. Where could I go but to the Lord? There is no other place. There is, there, there is no other resource that we can... Now, if you're going to suffer, are you going to suffer quietly away from God? Because what, you're upset with him or you don't think he can help? Or are you going to suffer with him? Are you going to wrestle with him because he's the only one who can save? He's the only one that can help. All right, in suffering, trust in God's sovereign power. Years ago, I was having a conversation with my dad. Uh, We've been estranged for years uh, because my mom and dad divorced when I was a tyke. I didn't remember my dad. And in my teen years, we were getting caught up and we, we were out doing something. 
and uh, driving along in his truck. And somehow, it, he knew I was a Christian. I'd been reading the scripture, and, it was really, and I think he thought that was cool. He was a confessing believer, but he had some weird ideas. He was a science teacher, so you know science teachers. Uh, weird ideas about how the world works. They think they know. Uh, he taught physics, so he thought he understood how the world worked. And we were talking about suffering, and I'll never forget because I just like my heart kind of stopped because my dad was going to tell me how it was. And he's like, Jay, here's how it is. When God created the world, he, he made this perfect place with, with the laws of physics and everything working. And then he just set it aside and he just let it go. And so when you have suffering and when you have trials, that's just the universe working, operating according to the laws that God created. But God's not engaged in that. God's not involved in that. Not only did not God not cause it, but God's not going to help you out of it either. You're going to have to help yourself because it's just physics. It's just the law of the universe. And I think we had a little bit of an argument. I didn't want to really you know, trash my dad when we were just getting caught up, but I'm thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about. My dad's an educated idiot. Uh, he, got, he got a lot closer to the Lord through the years, I, I, I will say that. Now, could God have done it that way? God could have done it any way God wanted to do it. But, but God could not have done it that way on an, because God revealed himself differently. In other words, the scripture does not fit. If you want to reject scripture and say that's the God you believe in, you know, you're welcome to do that. But if you're going to read the Bible, the Bible, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no similarity between that view and what the scripture teaches. God is sovereign. God made it. He didn't step back from it. God is intimately there and involved in his creation, in everything whatsoever past cometh to pass. David wrestles with and prays to a God who is in charge. Now look, look at where we left off. Psalm um, 6, 3b through uh, four, three B through four. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So David does not pray to a powerless God who's uninvolved. Why is he saying how long? What kind of a weird prayer is that? Is it just that God knows? Is it, is it just that God's all-knowing? No, I mean, when you put it all together with the rest of Scripture, David is saying, God, you ordained that. You're in control. Jesus said the sun falls on the just and the unjust alike, as does the rain. And God is in, is in, in power over all of those things. And David is, this is a plea. It's not just a theoretical question. He's like, God, how long are you going to have this go on? You're in control. You could stop this. You've determined it. It's happening. I, you, what do I make of this? When will, when will you bring this to an end? seems to me that everything hinges on who God is. If God is mighty and sovereign and, and above and, and in control of all things, that's a whole different set. You're going to pray differently than if you think God wound up the universe and set it off like a clock and then stepped back. See, in that one situation, I don't know why I would, why would I pray to God like that. Thanks? You're not involved? You, 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 what, what's happening to me is just random? Like it's got, it's just the physical law of the universe and there's nothing more to it than that? No. But when we see the God of Scripture, we know He is engaged. He is in control. And so we do pray, Lord, how long? How long have you ordained that I go through that and I'm going to cry out and I'm going to wrestle and I'm going to implore? That's what David did. This is, this is how God has revealed himself to us. And 
Brothers and sisters, we're not at liberty to rewrite God according to how we want him to be. I mean, if it makes it easier for you to say, I think God's just can't, he can't. I mean, Andre Trachme, if you think, well, that's going to make it better, you know, have at it, I guess. But, but we're not at liberty to do that. God has not revealed himself that way. In suffering, this is my favorite point today. In suffering, you may bargain tearfully with God. In suffering, you may bargain tearfully with God. It says, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, you, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. Man, you just want to sit there for a while and just take that in. That's not what you came to church to do. You, we're not gonna, you don't want me to just have a sit here and reflect for five minutes. But that'd be worth doing, the, the poetry of that. The picture of just the, 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 the tears. This guy's beside himself, isn't he? Has your child ever bargained with you, parents? Does that ever happen to you? Was it just me? Yeah? You're out. It's a hot summer day. You make the mistake of going on North Main. You see the Dairy Queen. Ah. The child's powerless. The child can't turn the wheel of the car. If you get one trying to do that, that's interesting and exciting. But uh, no, the child, the child can't make you turn in. So what do they, you know, a block ahead, they're like, oh, mom, oh, oh dad, can you just, we could just go through the drive-in. I, I, I feel myself, my soul is languishing. <laughs> my whole bones, Lord, are troubled, right? You know, like just... Just one ice cream cone. It doesn't have to be chocolate dipped. It could just be a regular vanilla cone, and that'll be all I need, and that'll set me up, and then when we get home, I'll mow the lawn. <laughs> and they bargain, don't they? It, I mean, David is, is kind of bargaining with God here. He's saying, Who, who's going to be around God? Huh? Who's going to be around when I'm gone? It's like that song, when I'm gone. Yeah, when I'm gone. You know that one? You're going to miss me when I'm gone. That's what he's saying to God. He's like, God, you're going to miss me. Some people read this and go, see, they didn't believe in eternal life in the Old Testament because he talks about it as those, you know, in the grave, no one remembers you. And that, what he's saying is, is I'm not going to be around to lead the choirs of Israel in, in praise to you in the temple. Or, or Well, the temple didn't exist yet, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to be there to do that, am I? Where are you going to be without old David, without old David singing your praises? He's trying to you know, move God's heart to give him what he is asking for. And is that manipulative? Yeah. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It is, it is a form of manipulation. It's, it's what we do. It's what children do. But you know what? What does that imply by, on the face of it? It, it implies there's a, a, a parent-child relationship. It implies that the child knows that they're powerless and, and that, they, they, that they, they're trying to move the heart of their father. I remember one stormy night when I was a wee boy. Sounds like I was from Scotland or something there, but no. I was just a, a little boy in Muncie, Indiana, growing up in that repeatedly haunted house that I've talked about on several occasions. Like, oh, he's going to tell another haunted house story. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I don't think I've ever shared this one. Um, it was a dark and stormy night. I, uh, I was the youngest, so I'd get sent to bed first. So everybody else got to be downstairs watching TV, and I had to go up to bed in a dark, reputedly haunted house. And it was storming. 
that's the worst. I don't know if you remember being afraid uh, of that extra little, you know, fear factor, but it was scary. I was lying there in the dark, and everybody else is away, and I'm there at the mercy of whatever's, you know, going bump in the night, and now we're getting, you know, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, and all at once there was this just big boom of thunder, and all I can figure is, is it probably makes sense, but all at once, you know, as the house is shaking, I had one of those old-timey blinds, you know, the kind of old-timey blinds I'm talking about, the spring-loaded ones, you know, where you pull down, and if you, if you get it going, it'll go, yeah, everybody's with me on that? And my, my window was like a five, six-foot tall window, and I swear it was all the way down one minute, and the next minute I hear, <laughs> the next sound that they heard in the house was the sonic boom of my body breaking the sound barrier as I flew out of bed and all the way down two flights of steps, and I was standing in the living room breathing and crying, and, and they look at me, and they're like, Jay, you look like you saw a ghost. I'm like, that wasn't a fair thing to say to me at all. I was, I, I was absolutely terrified, and I, and I remember I just went right into that crying manipulative thing because I was powerless, and I knew they were going to send me back up there and 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 I did everything but wet myself. I'm, I'm standing there and I, and I'm crying and I'm imploring and I'm telling them how frightened I am. And they're like, "Nope, you're going to bed." And my mom grabs me and she's going to carry me up the stairs. And I'm fighting her like a demon possessed rabid raccoon. I am just like yelling and flailing and crying. And I don't know what all I promised, but she got me about halfway up. And you know, to this day, I'm amazed. She turned around. And she took me back downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, if you knew my family, you'd know that didn't happen every day. But, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what children do. When we look at the Lord, the Lord Jesus in the garden, he prays to his Father. He's facing something of an agony, of a trouble that you and I can't even begin to conceive of. He's going to take upon himself the whole wrath of God for sinners. He's going to take sin upon himself. He, It says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And in that garden, he said, Lord, if you can take this cup from me, you know, if it be your will, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Our God is our father. And David shows us that you can boldly bargain with your God. And you're like, I don't think that's right, Jay. I'm going to go home and I'm going to have an asterisk next to this point because I think you're making stuff up and this isn't proper for a Christian to manipulate God. Hey, Abraham bargained with God. Jacob wrestled an angel saying, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. That sounds manipulative to me. And then Moses, he's like, just, just take my life. If you're going to kill these people and leave, you know, just, just, just take my life. He bargained with God, and there's something in that. I'm not saying that we literally can manipulate God. I'm just saying if we situate our suffering there with God, we honor him in that way. We're taking, we're taking it seriously that, that, that he is our father. And that, that, that we can come to him in that powerless way of a child and he will hear us. In suffering, confess God's power over evil. This is the last point now. And, and this still could be related to Absalom's rebellion. Some people think so. Uh, but whatever it is, David is still facing evil men. Yeah, whoever they are. 
It says, my eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Do you recall in Psalm 4, David prayed something very similar to this? I'll just refresh your memory. There he said, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So what is David's comfort when he is troubled? Part of it is that God hears him, and so he knows that his weeping and his prayers and so forth are not wasted on God. But his other comfort is he knows that God is going to stick it to his enemies. He knows that they will Get their comeuppance. Do we still use that word? Anybody still use the word comeuppance? I may have to retire that. Okay. Um, Remember how David spoke about uh, being troubled in verse 2, where he was troubled? Yeah? And now he says, all my enemies shall be greatly troubled. David's confidence is ultimately that though he's going through what he's going through, body, heart, soul, mind, his whole, his whole being is languishing and, and he's troubled. But he knows that ultimately God will trouble those who have troubled him. Isn't that God's promise? There's also a clear parallel here to the life of Jesus who prayed with tears and, can, and entrusted his soul to his faithful creator. And his enemies had their sport, they mocked him, they surrounded him, they jeered at him, they put him through incredible forms of suffering and torture, and then they nailed him to a cross, and they thought they had won, just like they thought they won against David. For a while, it looked like David was out for the count. For a moment, it looked like Jesus was out for the count. But on the third day, God vindicated him. God raised him up from the dead, and his enemies were horrified. They were in anguish. They were vexed. They were troubled. And I'll tell you what, bad things happen to those people. For the most part, those that didn't come to know him, you know, Psalm 2, those that didn't kiss the sun, as it were, you know, they they went through horrible things in terms of their death. I mean, Pontius Pilate lost his son in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii. Did you know that? Yeah. Not to mention having, apart from having come to Christ, Yeah, he would have endured the wrath of God. We believe in the God who triumphs over evil. That doesn't mean that we won't go through trouble and tribulation. We see that here in the text. We see it throughout Scripture. We will go through hard times, but what we know is no matter what kind of evil comes on the world stage or in a very personal, so it could be Hitler, it could be Stalin, Paul Pot, or it could just be that ugly person at the office that treats you so poorly. But whatever evil it is God brings, we know that God will repay. God will not be mocked. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You say, well, that doesn't seem like a very Christian attitude. It's a totally Christian attitude. It's one of the great comforts we're given. In Paul's letter, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, he says that when Christ returns, he's going to relieve our trouble and bring trouble upon those who have troubled us. That is God's promise, and that brings us comfort. On that day, those who have troubled you, it would have been better for them 
if they'd gone out into the deepest ocean and tied a millstone around their neck and cast themselves into the sea compared to what they will bear for having punished God's children. So wrestle with him. Wrestle with him. So we situate our suffering in God. We, we, we bring God into our suffering. We don't push him away. Wrestle with him. How many remember wrestling with their dads or their grandpas? None? Seriously? Didn't you do that? Any of you ladies? Yes? Okay. I didn't know if this was only going to resonate with men. But, uh, so, okay, good, good. Well, guys love this. It's, I mean, I know it, it's wired into us. I can remember wrestling with my grandpa when I was probably three. And I remember the, the feel of the carpet, the smell, every, every, and he was a farmer, so he didn't smell great either. Uh, so let alone the carpet business. But, but I remember that. I remember everything about it. And you know what I remember? Um, and, and you just have to trust me on this, I guess. But I remember sheer joy. Like, you know, people talk about going to a happy place. Remembering what it was like to get down there on the floor and wrestle and win, of course, because I was a very muscular three-year-old. No, but you know, you're, you're typically, I don't know, maybe you had a cruel father who didn't let you win, but most of us got a chance to win and feel like, oh, you know, I'm so mighty and great, but it was just the most wonderful experience to, to just everything about that was so, was so cool. And I think that's how we're meant to do when it comes to, to suffering. When we're suffering the effects of sin and evil, you can push God away, and, and I don't know what good you get from that, to bear that alone. Or you can say, you know what, I don't understand what God's doing right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw in. I'm going to get close. I'm going to wrestle with him in prayer. I'm going to consider the possibility of God's discipline. If he's disciplining me, it's good. It's for my good. I know that. He's trying to fashion me into the holy image of his son at the bare minimum. Cry out, because that's the only place where you're going to receive grace. He's the only one who's the repository of that. Think about his sovereign power. Yes, it cuts two ways. Yes, that means that if I'm suffering, that a sovereign God has ordained for me that I go through this. But at the same time, only a sovereign God can help me in my suffering. Only a sovereign God. And yeah, if you want to tearfully bargain with him, I, I think he invites us to that. It doesn't mean that everything coming out of our mouth makes theological sense or is good in and in of itself. But what's good about it is we are, we are wrestling with our Father and we are, we are crying. We, we, we know that we're powerless. And so we're, we're tearfully bargaining. And then finally confess. Confess God's power over sin because God ultimately will trouble those who trouble you. We pray for their salvation, don't get me wrong. We want, we want what's good, but God will not permit evil to reign. So dear unbeliever, you question, you're like, why does God let evil endure? Why, do, why if he's a good guy, why does he let evil persist in the world? And that's a good question. Why does God let you exist in the world? It is something to ponder. Because you're evil. You're you don't know yourself well enough to know that? That there is evil in you? And you've done evil things and you've hurt people and you've made people cry and you've done things you didn't think you should have done and you've harbored ill thoughts and you've lived in pride and rebellion against God. Why does God let you exist? I know God should be punished for that, right? 
He lets you exist because God gives you a time. He gives you space so that you might repent. God's kindness, the Bible says, should lead us to repentance. So if you're in that place and you hear this message today, then rather than pushing that God away, how, how about wrestling with him? How about, how about engaging that God? Wrestle with him. Cry out to him. Confess to him that you're a sinner. Confess to him that you're broken. You don't think it's all on you. You don't think you should be responsible with it. Wrestle. Tell him. Tell him what you've done. Tell him that you, that you want what he alone can give. Tell him that this, this repository of all grace, look to that. And if you look to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he gave for sinners, if you believe upon him, you'll be saved. And having been saved, you'll be, you'll be in this father-child relationship. You'll be able to wrestle with your father God. And there is joy. There's absolute joy in that. I'm not saying there's no trouble and no problems that befall you, but there will be joy and there will be help and grace in your time of need, and you will have the Father that you so desperately need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Your word is true. Your word tells a different story than what our hearts sometimes believe. Lord, we're tempted to believe that that a world so full of, of, of harm and trouble and evil couldn't, couldn't somehow be your world. But Lord, we know that you created it. We know, Lord, that we, uh, in our sin, caused the whole fabric of, of, of the world to almost unravel. But that in grace, Lord, you have persisted. And that you involve yourself with your children. That you're near to us. That when we are downcast, Lord, you are close that when we are low, you stoop down. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are love and grace and mercy and that you have given us your son. And we pray, Lord, for any person today that's a rebel against you, someone that's been holding you at arm's length, Lord, that you would break through their resistance and that they would see you and, and desire you and turn to you through faith in your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen.